Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where I bring the best founders, CEOs, and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. His name is John Warrillo, the founder of the Value Builder System, host of the Build to Sell radio podcast, and author of the best-selling books, Build to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry, and the art of selling your business with strategies and secret acts for exiting on top. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, and you are calling from Toronto in, in Canada, where I have been very recently, and I will be back in the in the first week of October. <laughs> there you go. Beautiful time of year, beautiful colors. Uh, stay away in December, January, February, but in October, <laughs> it's a beautiful place to be. Good Let's enough. do house swap. How about I come to your place in Portugal in January, and you can come to my place in uh, Toronto in January. Sound good? I'm not sure if my wife will be very happy with that, but but yeah, we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> Just on you. <laughs> I would be happy to be honest. Yeah. I think the, the the difficult one. It's it's easy, right? To, <laughs> to say, but that's true, by the way. <laughs> Anyway, John, let us know a bit more for the ones who didn't have the chance yet to, to get to know you, uh, a bit of your story, your why, and why you, you became so passionate about uh, helping other founders to, to create the option of selling their business or even preparing them for exit. Yeah, it's probably because I screwed it up. I, you know, when I used to own a, a quantitative market research firm, uh, we worked with big customers and helped them understand small business. And, and our, our mantra at the time was kind of grow revenue, grow profit. That's how we thought about the business. And we were very proud of the fact that we had these, all these great clients, Bank of America, Microsoft, were all clients of ours. And so we built it up to about uh, roughly 6 million top line, call it a million and a half on the bottom line. So it was profitable service business, classic kind of business. And I thought, oh, I want to sell it. So I went to a guy, an M&A guy, uh, Perry Mielli is his name, in Toronto. And I said, like, what do you think it's worth? And I was sort of rubbing my hands together, waiting for the answer, hoping to uh, to be wowed. And and he said, well, before I answer that question, let me ask a couple of questions of my own. He's sure. So he said, well, who does the research? And I said, well, I'm involved in doing some of the research. You know, big clients, that, you know, six-figure projects, I got to be involved. And he says, okay, well, who does the selling? And I'm like, well, it's like Microsoft, the Bank of America. Like, I got to go. To the meetings, right? Because right. you know, it's, and he said, "Well, John, there's nothing to sell. I, I, I can't sell your company. There's, there's nothing here. It's worthless." And I, and I said, "Well, what, what are you talking about? It's worthless. We've got a million five in profit. Um, you know, Microsoft's a customer. Bank of America. What do you mean it's not worth anything? He's like, that means nothing without the company being able to run without you. If it's all dependent on you, it's just a job." And, and I. Uh, you know, I felt obviously, and a lot of entrepreneurs feel this way when they get told their their baby is not as quite as pretty as they thought it was, and their <laughs> business is not as valuable as they thought it was, and and it was like being punched in the stomach. And you know, I went on over time to to take Perry's advice. We put a a subscription program in place. We got me out of doing the selling. Uh, ultimately, it was acquired by a publicly traded company, uh, Gartner Group, based in in. Uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, New York Stock Exchange listed company, so it, it had a happy ending, but it was a uh, a very tumultuous time. And I've sort of dedicated the rest of my life to helping 
other entrepreneurs uh, understand what drives the value of their company. And, and, um, and so that's what we do at Value Builders, what we do at Build Sell. Yeah, that's my story. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, so you, you were uh, an operator, right? So and nowadays you keep building also your, your own company. And according to my stats, you were also able to start and exit four companies uh, so far, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, my current operating company is called Value Builder. Um, so we're, I don't know, yeah, we're 40 or 50 employees, um, SaaS company cool. based in Toronto. That sounds amazing. Would you like to just quickly give us a, an overview about, about the Value Builder? Uh, yeah, I mean, Value Builder, yeah. I mean, Value Builder helps, you know, the, the most famous product we have is called the Value Builder Report. And it is used to establish both an estimate of value for your company, along with what it could be worth in the future. And all the businesses that go through Value Builder start there. And the reason they do that is because it's similar to, if you think about when you show up at a trainer in a gym, what's the first thing the trainer does when you first start an exercise program? They say, hey, let's do an assessment. Let's see how yeah. your body fat percentage, let's see how many times you can right. push, do push-ups or whatever. And why do they do that? Well, number one, they they do it to prescribe a plan going forward, but also they also do it so that you can see your progress as a client, right? So you can look back and go, wow, I can only do like 10 push-ups and now I can do 100. It, it increases and improves the client experience. And that's really what we do at Value Builder. So we have an assessment, business owners take it, and then we give them a prescription for how to improve and then they can track it over time and see how their value is improving over time. We measure businesses on these eight metrics that acquirers care about. So anyways, that's what we do. Sounds amazing. And, and it's always great to, to be helping uh, other, other founders with, do you help other founders with the insights, with the book, with the thought leadership, with the podcast, or do you also, uh, or people are also able to reach out to you to, to be helped from you, um, to, to, you know, to prepare themselves to, to sell their companies. Yeah. I, I I'm not, a, I don't do any consulting first, right. firsthand. Yep. So I, I'm focused uh, really on building value builder. It's a full-time job. All yep. of the intellectual property that we have, all the, the algorithm and all the analytics, we've had 70,000 users go through it now, 70,000 business owners. So all that is baked into the report. Yeah. So no, I'm not, I don't do one-on-one -on -one consulting, but I, right. I, um, I run this company that Keeps me pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, not very scalable as well, so it would go against you. Yeah, <laughs> kind of ironic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, by the hour. <laughs> so that's a great answer that you just <laughs> that you just did. Yeah. Consistency in in the message and, and leading by uh, by example. Hundred percent. I was I was just sharing the other day uh, your your podcast and your books to to a founder and told me, oh, I, I'm much much more a, a fan of build to last instead of build to sell mm -hmm. right and uh, i thought but you should check what johnny is writing <laughs> because uh is is i think it's always nice to build a business with with the mindset of one day you would be an option to sell it right even if you don't decide to sell it so because in in that sense building a, a business that is sellable will make it and according to your story uh, and the why behind what you do today um, it, it's it's really this so if the company is not dependent on you the company will be much more scalable much more successful and you will have options so even if you if you are not 
thinking about selling your business or you it doesn't come to your mind that option at all build to sell that's a great guide that that's a great resource to read anyway 100 percent, yeah like absolutely the the idea is that a company that's built to sell is one that is not dependent on you is bulletproof you've got all the options you could sell you could bring a, a private equity group in if you wanted you could keep 100 percent of the equity and just be the chairperson and you know bring in a CEO. All those options are available to you uh, if you structure it to sell. And to the point about build to last, you know, I, I I think I think there's two types of entrepreneurs. This is a, broadly speaking, a huge generalization. Yeah. There are entrepreneurs who who kind of think of their role as sort of the custodian of their company. Uh, you know, they they have these very grandiose sort of impressions of being the sort of patriarch of this business, and that <laughs> one day they're going to pass it down to the management team or pass it down to their kids. Right. And and I you know I just don't identify with that. I like I I think a business. <laughs> is there to create freedom for you the owner yes you should have a vision and values and all that stuff i'm not i'm not saying you shouldn't have that stuff but but business isn't a life sentence like you don't have to own your business for the rest of your life your kids do not have to own your company after you're gone i think that's akin to child abuse personally you yeah. don't have to do those things you 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 can build a business make it successful and when it reaches a point where the value of the company, if you made it liquid, would fund the rest of your life, ask yourself, we call that the freedom point, by the way, ask yourself, why do I want to go further? Now, maybe there's a reason. Maybe you want to solve world hunger. Maybe you want to, you know, there's some bucket list thing you want to go do. But for most people who start a company, you know, their goal is freedom right? They yeah. want to do whatever they want, whenever they want to. That's their ultimate right. like core value as a human being. Yeah. And once you reach the point where your company could fund, the sale of your company could fund anything you want to go do forever, you have total and utter freedom. And the question that I would ask is, well, why would you continue to own your company? Uh, too many examples of business owners who say, I just want to get to and I realized this is the Scaling Up podcast. So forgive me for, for uh, you know, like for, for, for asking a challenging question to your listeners. But, but I think it begs the question, why do you want to grow your top line at the risk of your freedom? I'll give you an example. I just interviewed a lady on Built to Sell Radio who got to her company to $7 million in revenue, $3 million of EBITDA. She had wow. just gone through a bankruptcy before she started this company. So she had some kind of baggage coming into it. She reached the point of 7 million in revenue, 3 million in EBITDA. And almost 50%. Yeah, she wasn't satisfied. And she <laughs> wanted to scale this business to, you know, 15 different locations. Like she had this big grand plan. And and I said, "Okay, so what did you do next?" I mean, you you'd sort of come from the ashes where you didn't have any anything. And now you built this company for $3 million in profit. And she said, well, I took on a mezzanine debt loan for $16 million, guaranteeing the $16 million loan with her shares in the company and a personal guarantee. Wow. And I just about fell off my chair because I said, you had reached financial security. You've come yeah. from bankruptcy if you sold a company with $3 million of EBITDA growing quickly, 
to your point, almost 50% profit margins, you're going to get five, seven, 10 times EBITDA. So she was looking at, I mean, on the low end, 15, $20 million of cash for right. her company, which by any measure, unless you have some horrible lifestyle <laughs> is enough money to do whatever you want for she was a hundred percent shareholder and instead so invested well yeah. instead she said no no we we want to we want to be a hundred million dollar company and so she took on a giant risk again pledging all of her shares all that 15 mm -hmm. or 20 million dollars of value she created plus a personal guarantee just because she wanted to be bigger and I, I just, I like, I don't identify with that. Like, I, I think it's just so asinine. I think it's, I think it's just insane to want to do that. I think the ultimate goal, I shouldn't say asking, it's, I just don't identify with it. Like, that's just not yeah. something that I would ever do or, or, or would ever recommend anybody do. I think once you built a company that could fund the rest of your life, if your goal is freedom, hit the bid. Like, sell the company, yeah. take the cat, or at least do a majority recapitalization where, and I know your listeners are familiar with this. You can bring in private equity group. They'll, you know, they'll take on, um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to cash out 50, 60, 70% of your shares. You may want to roll some equity, but if you're relying on your company to fund the rest of your life, you reach the point where it could do that. Hit the bid is my, is my perspective. That's that's really uh, interesting, and and even if you are willing to take that risk, at least be aware of the options that you have at at this stage again, right? So it, this is really really uh, important. So don't be conditioned by what you are seeing the magazines that nowadays, the the VC path is uh, is the path to go, right? And you need to build that hundred million that will be evaluated. The 10x revenue, it's uh, the unicorn level, the billion dollar company. And we have a lot of VC backup companies here on the show, and I've supported multiple CEOs there. And that's a completely different game. So we need to, to grow 2x at least every single year to, to stay appealing. And we, we might turn an amazing uh, business in, into a failure because it just doesn't follow the standards uh, or the demands of, of the investors. And, uh, and then you can't. You can't give back the all the, the money that you raised because you have burned it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can go back to have a lifestyle business. So that, that that's that there's no not that option. But uh, we are talking a year a lot about founders who were able to bootstrap their businesses to to 10 million, 20, 25% a bit, which would be amazing. amazing. Uh 2 million, 2.5. According to you, kind of a 5x, it would be. 10, 15 million. Uh, yeah, don't, yeah, don't take the 5X to the bank. I, it, her business happened to be a service business. There was yeah. no recurring revenue. So she would have gotten a like a lower multiple. If it was something with recurring revenue, about anyway, SaaS company uh, it would have gotten free X, much, much right, so, yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah. Th that's what you're saying. It, it really helps the the entrepreneur to to have a, a lot of freedom and to be able to reinvest the money in, in other assets. But then there is the question of the purpose and what to do after the exit, the identity that is mixed with, with the business. That is, I think, the most difficult part is... A hundred percent, yeah. We are the business, right? So if we leave the business, we don't know who we are. Because so here, I mean, uh, yeah, we just did a podcast with Rob Walling. He sold Drip for enough money that he didn't have to do anything for the rest of his life. He, he was 41 at the time. 
and uh, you know, Rob did a two-year earnout. Uh, again, didn't have to work, uh, and it's one of those uh, times where you have this sort of paradox of choice, right? You you could do anything you want, and and I think of it like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like once you mm-hmm. once you get your foot on the first rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where you don't, you know, you don't, you're never going to worry about you know, food or shelter or the basic stuff you're, you're, you're taken care of for life. It does pose the question. So what next? And if you think about back to grade 10, (laughs) uh, social studies, Maslow talked about moving up the hierarchy, right. To purpose and to, to think about what it is that your sort of life's mission is. And that's what Rob did. He, he went on a founder's retreat and figured out that, that for him, uh, he loved to invest. And so he, he, he created a little uh, kind of a micro investment group called Tiny Seed, loves his podcast. I mean, he, he, he's, he's reinvented himself successfully. Um, I just did another interview, uh, in fact, yesterday, uh, a guy named Lloyd Lobo, who sold his company. And to your point, went through a terrible period of depression. Uh, he sold a private equity group, the private equity group kind of, they came to the realization that he was probably not the right guy to run the company after selling it. Uh, he put on a bunch of weight, drank too much, like got sort of really bad for him. And it's not an uncommon story if you don't know what you're going to go do next. Um, so I think it's important to to have, we call them pull factors, but when you sell your company, you've got push and pull factors, push factors is things that frustrate you, right? Like regulation, taxes, employees, yeah. pull factors are the things you want to go do next, right? And yeah. so what we would always encourage founders to do is get really clear on your pull factors. Specificity counts here, right? So I want to I want to rent a house in the Algarve and I want to learn how to windsurf. <laughs> Great. Yeah, awesome. Portugal. <laughs> very, yeah, very specific. Right. And then when you sell, you have those things to go to. Ryan Culp, another guy I interviewed, wanted to build a, a hobby farm. Right. So he's happier than a, a pig in uh, crap building his farm after selling his company. But that's because he had something that he was planning to go do. The worst is to is to sell for a truckload of money and then not have a plan because that's just a recipe for uh, a sense of, of loss for sure. Yeah. A lot of these things, and sorry to be so much on the why uh, to sell, but I think it's really important for the ones who are listening to us. And I know that our audience is very aggressive and very ambitious in general, according to, to what I've been sensing. And they, they are really on the way to how can we build an 100 million uh, business. I know that nowadays people are much more aware. I want to build a, a large business, but also with uh, a lot of profitability and cash generation. So it's not only burning, burning, burning and and uh, and valuation. So they want something solid. But sometimes there is this kind of, in order to get, and we don't discuss here too much the starting up stuff, right? So get to one, 1. 1.5 million. It's really survival mode. You are trying to, pro- to find product market fit. You find product market fit. And then one to five, you are one to five and one to 10, let's say. 
you are trying to find that predictability, that uh, you know sustainability in terms of your revenue machine. How can you make it repeatable, scalable, profitable, right? So, in in that sense, typically when you have the machine in place, you have the leadership team. Unless you hate your job as an executive because you are an innovator, a creator, an entrepreneur, and now you feel in a prison uh, because you need to you know lead your weeklies, your monthlies, your quarterlies. Uh, have the one-on-ones with your CMO, with your CRO, with your CFO, and and this is really boring to you. And, uh, and maybe- I, I don't know anyone like I like I literally. Do you know entrepreneurs like that? Like literally, I don't know virtually anyone that likes running a business north of ten million dollars. Like literally, I don't know anybody. Like I think of yeah. the world as P- zero to one, one to hundred. Like the Peter Thiel like uh, notion, right? There yeah. are guys and gals who love starting companies. They love it. They love the energy. They love yeah. the first couple of million in revenue, the three, four, five million dollars. When when you move to like 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars and there's like a hundred employees, they can't stand it. They want to put a bullet in their head. They think right. the world, right? So that's when like you need to bring in the a CEO. CEO who runs the company. As an or entrepreneur, yeah. I know virtually like literally almost nobody yeah. that that likes running a $10 million company as, as a founder. I know a ton of people who love running $10 million companies as a professional manager. They they love alignment. They love doing employee reviews. They love getting the team together. They love having like product review meetings, right? Like <laughs> all that stuff. It's like hundred percent, right? But they're not founders. They may be shareholders. They may be minority. They may have some options in the company, but the same guy or gal who started a company in their garage and sold the first company is almost never, Almost never the guy who runs happily a $30 million company. I, I mean, just look at Rob Walling. I literally just interviewed him. Rob Walling built Drip to 10 employees, couple million revenue, top line. Brought in a private, like an investor and did a two-year earnout. They took it from 10 to 100 employees. After two years, he just didn't want to go to work anymore. Like he was literally exhausted. Why? Because he's got a team of eight engineers, six product managers. And like, that's not what he wants to do. He wants to build product because he's an entrepreneur. Right. So that happened to him at 10 employees, right? He was happy from zero to 10, right? <laughs> Million or two in revenue. But beyond yeah. that, no way. And I think I would challenge you to talk to the entrepreneurs who started, not inherited their business, not bought their business or had it passed down to them from their mother or father, but literally started from the garage. And I bet you that virtually none of them want to be the chief operating officer of their company. In other words, running the weekly management meeting, doing all the reviews, like none of them. I think they want to put a bull in their head. That's my, that's, that's my two cents. I challenge you to think that way. But again, there are lots of people that want to take a company from 10 to $100 million. They're just not own. They're not founders. They're not entrepreneurs. They are professional managers. There's a difference, a huge difference. It's yeah. a totally different headspace. And, and, and virtually none of the founders I know would be any good at running a $30 million company. Equally, none of the $30 million company operators I know would ha- know how to start anything out of their garage. They need funding. They need they need millions of dollars of investment because that's what they need to 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 structure their life. They're 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 totally different human beings. They're like 
oil and water, black and white. Like you couldn't think of a different headspace than a founder versus a professional manager. Yeah, it's my two cents. <laughs> no, I I fully agree, and it, it completely aligns with 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 my experience uh, so far. So in the beginning of of my career coaching CEOs and leadership teams, I've tried to make the CEO or the founder become a CEO uh, or what I call the CEO 2.0, the CEO 3.0 for the different stages of growth of the company. And I quickly realized that, um, yeah, I'm not in the business of changing people, especially if the if the founder CEO doesn't want to be that person. Uh, you are right. So it's maybe 1% or 2% who are really willing to do to go through that transformation. But the majority really needs to build a very strong leadership team that will allow them to do what what he, what he or she likes, uh, and maybe have a have a COO or second in command that would be almost doing the job of the of the CEO, or even if having more courage, leave the ego aside and being able to become more a chairman and an innovator and have a CEO. Uh, yeah, in, right? I think but, yeah, I think that's right. I think I think more like once that business reaches, call it. I mean, I think there's there's something around like two layers of management that happens 50, 60, 70 employees where it's not just you've got one layer of managers in your company. When you've got two layers of manager, managers, yeah. now you've got you as the CEO, call it, you know, the, the most senior person has now got to influence people as opposed to direct them. Yeah, That's where it gets really annoying. And, and I think most <laughs> owners would prefer, I think most owners, if they reach the point, again, we're talking about 0.00001% of businesses ever start, ever reach 70 employees. Like this is a huge, right. massive business relative to the average, right? Only 4% yeah. of businesses in North America ever yeah, reach a million dollars in yeah. sales, let alone 10 million, right? Yeah. It's like, Tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a percentage that ever reached yeah. this point. So we're talking about a unicorn to begin with or, or, or a very, very unique company. But yeah. once, if you're lucky enough and savvy enough to get a business that you started from your garage to 70 employees, um, I think it behooves you to e either sell it or at the very least become an investor, not a CEO. Mm -hmm. A CEO runs the business. They're making the decisions. They've got a management team rolling up to them. They've probably got a COO that's doing the operate. They're still running the company and they're going to be frustrated. They're going to be uh, probably bad at their job, frankly, when it reaches two layers of management. And it's at that stage where I would encourage a founder that reaches 70 employees to say, okay, I'm going to be an investor, right? I'm, I'm yeah. going to be the investor. I may be the majority shareholder. I may bring in a private equity group to help, you know, balance out my kind of personal balance sheet. But I'm going to think of this as an investment, just like I would my home, my vacation property, the stocks I own in Google and Microsoft. Like it's an investment. You're not the CEO. I think, again, there are very, very, very few people that want to be that want to found like start companies and be a, a, a CEO of a 70 employee company. Like Bill Gates comes to mind. Well, if you think you're Bill Gates, then fine. <laughs> but most people are not that person, right? right? Most people do really well. Most people are like Rob Walling, right? Do really well, zero to 10 employees. Not great when it's a hundred. Yeah. And and we get back to what I was trying to do. What is the exact timing that you should start building your company to be able to have the option to to sell? And clearly, I think that we stated it right. So, 
one to five, five to 10, those are typically, or one to 10, those are the, the stages where you already need to maybe have the company structure to be not dependent on you, because if not, it will not be able to keep growing. Uh, and also to have the option of uh, of selling it. So we need to do it anyway. That was the initial point that we're talking yeah, about 100%. in the beginning. Yeah. So even if you want to sell or not to sell, uh, and, and yeah, like most companies, yeah, most yeah. most companies reach a plateau, uh, you know, f- f- a few hundred grand in revenue, maybe yeah. a million or two. If if it's a if it's like a manufacturing business that has uh, right. lots of expenses and so forth, but they reach a point where if they are the rainmaker for the company, uh, the front person, the rainmaker, the business will stall. Right? It, it just reaches a plateau, and and most people reach that plateau. By the way. And they think, great, I got a lifestyle business. This is great. I've got two million in revenue. I can peel out five hundred grand a year. I feel like I live like a king. All my expenses are paid for: the boat, the car, whatever. Like, great. Most people reach that point and they're totally happy. Right. They, but they're never going to go beyond that because it's dependent on them. They right. can't take a great vacation. So, yeah, to go from the the, the one million, the two million dollar revenue business. Uh, and, and make it into a $10 million business, you have to, you have to think like a, an investor as opposed to yeah. like a rainmaker. Does that make I sense? Think, yeah, absolutely. And making the point that I think it's some, for some founders, it takes some time to get there is, so what, what is my number, right? What is the freedom number? And, mm. and typically if it is kind of five, 10, as you, as you said, unless you, you have very exquisite flavors and the lifestyle and you want to buy a a 10 or 20 million uh, dollar uh, house and uh, you know have uh, uh, amazing cars that don't want to maybe you need to go to an hundred million uh, and be able to replicate that money but i would say for the majority of people five to ten million would be a, a very interesting package to have some uh, freedom and not be worried about working uh, or being able to do what you like and yeah. still make money uh, because i think that that's funny as well uh, but but having more purpose so which means let's okay if it is five it's one million a bit typically if you are running in a in a good way your company or let's say two million uh and two million already gets you to 10 million pockets so one to ten one to two million a bit which would be five to ten million revenue if it is 20 percent uh a bit right so that that is the stage which typically will will sign you the check right so that was yeah, the point I was which, trying to make which, it clearly right yeah, which is why, by the way, if you look at the ownership of companies below 10 million and above 10 million, it's totally different. So companies with less than $10 million in revenue are almost always founder owned, right? They're, they're, they haven't gone through a recapitalization yet, right? It's the owner who owns the majority of the shares. Maybe there's a CEO who's got some options. Maybe they've got a partner, but it's founder owned. Once you reach $10 million in revenue and you look at the segment of companies with 10 to 100 million, 100 million in revenue, it's virtually never founder owned anymore. Now, why is that? The reason is because they've reached the freedom point. Somewhere along the line, whether it happens at 8 million or 12 million, I'm talking about yeah. revenue or 14 million, yeah. the founder wakes up one morning and says, holy shit, my entire net worth is in this company. Everything is at risk in this company. Maybe I've signed a personal guarantee on our debt and they wake up and go, what am I doing? I need to sell and lock in my freedom point. So that's why companies with 10 to 100 million are very rarely founder led and founder owned. Usually you've got the founder with a minority stake still, 
because the private equity company has come in to recapitalize the business. That's the that's the vast majority. Are there rare examples where the founder is still a majority shareholder of an $80 million business? Sure, there are. Yep. But it's very rare. Much more likely to see a company with that that reaches that point. Again, it's it's natural. You kind of wake up and you're like, I've been living like the poker player with all my chips, you know, on black, everything in on this company since I started it. And when I started it, what didn't, it wasn't that big a deal because it was worthless, right? My entire net worth was my home, maybe some shares and and stocks, whatever. But as the company tips up in value, it goes from being one five percent of your net worth to like ninety nine point nine percent of your net worth, right. and that's when you're like wake up and go, oh my gosh, what happens if there's a global pandemic? What happens yeah. if there's a flood or a volcano that erupts, or I have an employee or a cyber attack or all this stuff that happens to business owners? And they're like, what am I doing? And so that's why, again, when it reaches five, ten, fifteen, twenty million in value, most owners cash out and they're done. They keep, a, they keep a slice because they want to participate, but they want that first rung on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and they do not want to be pushed off that mountain. They want to make sure they lock in that, and they're not ever at risk of, 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 of leaving that first rung of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Love it. So let's go to, to the methodology and to the framework and, and to the way you think about, you know, driving value and preparing the the business to to be sold so what do you think are the main points that we need or uh, yeah the main issues that we need to take care in order to make the business sellable yeah i mean there's kind of one thing that's easy to say and hard to do and 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 so the big thing that you need to do is make sure your company can thrive without you personally. Because if you think about the definition of selling your shares, it means you are effectively removing yourself and and acquirer needs to understand how that business is going to operate without you. And again, that's sort of a glib answer. It's a very superficial answer. It's very easy to say, hard to do. The number one thing you can do to make that reality and to convince an acquirer that it does not depend on you is to create recurring revenue. Recurring revenue um, is, and, and people get confused between reoccurring revenue and recurring revenue. Reoccurring revenue is like a rash you get. It's it's reoccurring. You never know when it's going to come. So if your customers repurchase from you from time to time, that's reoccurring revenue. When your customers buy on subscription and you swipe their credit card on the, on the same day, every single month, that's recurring revenue and acquirers value both reoccurring revenue and recurring revenue, but they're going to place a much higher priority on recurring revenue, right? Because they're going to realize that once you leave, they're going to want to see a tail to the revenue. So that's probably number one. And number two is, is again, we, we, we measure folks on these eight drivers, but recurring revenue is, is, is arguably the most important. The second one uh, is what we call hub and spoke, and it pertains to how dependent the business is on you. The answer is system. So obviously for a lot of owners, and again, I appreciate a lot of your listeners are beyond this point, but for a lot of business owners, um, the kind of core aspects of their business, the secret sauce, how the, the, the sausage gets made is still in their head. Right. And, and there's a little bit of osmosis people learn from following the founder around the shop floor or the, the office and they kind of, they kind of get it, but it's not written down anywhere. And so that's a big component is to create systems people can follow. Ideally, technology can follow as opposed to 
everything being in the, in the head of the owner. The SOPs, right? Standard operating procedures. Um, yeah, yeah. They're that's um, yeah. We, we created a product called VidGuide, and the, the reason we created it was to help owners, uh, uh, you know, create standard operating procedures inside their company. Yeah. But that's another major driving uh, force. A third one is something called the yeah. Switzerland structure, where, um, you know, the country of Switzerland is interesting. It, it's it's obviously. Uh, has a checkered history, but one of the things to know about Switzerland is at least the last time I looked at it on a per capita basis, Swiss are the richest people in the world. Now, why is that? How how have they become that way? Well, one of the ways they become so rich is being Switzerland. In other words, neutral to any of the world wars, right? So they they kind of have taken this stance that we're not going to get involved. Um, you know, they didn't join the EU. They don't join. You don't use the euro, uh, etc. And we gave the name the Switzerland structure so that CEOs could have sort of a, a vision of what it means to have to, to to be truly independent. And so there's three parts of the Switzerland structure score. It's your dependence on any key employee, any key supplier, or any key customer. And okay. so what you want is independence of those three groups, right? So you don't want any customer representing more than 10% of your revenue. You don't want to be heavily dependent on a key employee. Uh, nor do you want to be uh, heavily dependent on a key supplier who could change the terms of the deal, raise their price, uh, make supply a difficult issue, et cetera. So those are the three things that you want to make sure you've got independence of, key employee, supplier, or customer. Love it. So very, very important points. And so now I mentioned that I, I was able to get and achieve all those points, and, and we I, we would need to check another uh, four or five of of the eight. Yeah, uh, which is which is a great book <laughs> to go <laughs> to to go uh, read the book that I really recommend. Uh, and I say, okay, but I didn't have any interest from any investor to buy my business. So how do I create that demand? How how do I make myself visible for potential uh, for a potential acquisition? partnerships. What you want to do is, is approach. So first of all, figure out who your natural strategic acquirers are. Uh, we have a tool called the shortlist builder, but effectively what you're doing is trying to figure out who would have some sort of strategic thesis, some sort of investment thesis to buy our company. Right. And you can, uh, you know, you can you can figure that out, and and once you've got a short list of say between thirty and fifty companies that would have a strategic reason to buy your business, try to forge partnerships. And partnerships don't have to be with the CEO. You you don't have to create a CEO to CEO partnership. What you can do is approach the middle management of the company and daisy chain your way up to a more senior person. I got the strategy, or you know, one of the person the people that comes to mind when I think about the strategies is a woman named Stephanie Breedlove. She bought, built a great company. She uh, they did payroll for parents who have a nanny to pay. And when she looked out in the universe and said, like, who should buy this company? It was quick that she identified Care.com. Care.com is like um, it's a website where you can get a babysitter. Like you can get a you can plug in your zip code or your area code, and it will give you babysitters in your local au pairs in your local market, five star rated, et cetera. Um, she realized that because she did a payroll for parents who have a nanny to to pay. It was like a peanut butter and chocolate kind of relationship. They care should have acquired 
uh, Breed Loves Company. And so she approached care.com in the middle management ranks. She said, hey, let, let me just develop some content for your the parents that you work on how to successfully set up payroll for uh, a nanny. And so she started contributing content to care.com's blog. Well, the marketing manager loved what Stephanie was doing, introduced her to the director of marketing. The director of marketing thought, oh, we should have a deeper partnership, introduced her to the CMO. The CMO thought, man, this is such a, like a, a perfect marriage, introduced right. her to the CEO. The CEO identified the business as a natural candidate for acquisition, bought the business. It was a, a $9 million business, bought it for $46 million. So like an unbelievable outcome uh, for Stephanie, but it started with just a basic partnership at a marketing manager level. Because of course, what you are saying is uh, an acquirer who has a strategic reason to buy the company will be able to extract more value out of the company through the acquisition, uh, will be able to pay a higher multiple to someone with just doing a old call and if this might be a, a profitable business in in the in the portfolio but maybe will not add too much value in terms of uh, you know uh, creating any advantage for for the group of companies or, or for yeah. the the strategy of the company so there I only will acquire if I have a good price. So my multiple will go down right so it's, it seems a great business. it would be nice for my mix but it's not my priority, um, right? If I don't have the, the right price, I will not, I will not go aggressively uh, try to acquire because I see I see that I can turn that business from five to 10 million or it will make my other businesses much more valuable by adding that business to the mix, right? Yeah, that's 100% right. You're referring to a strategic acquisition compared to a financial acquisition. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, strategic <laughs> acquisition is 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 where they have some sort of strategic asset. In the case of Cure.com, they had 7 million subscribers. These so Think about this, 7 million parents who have a nanny to pay. Breedlove had taken 25 years to build her company of 9 million in revenue. So if 1% of care.com 7 million subscribers by payroll from Stephanie, that's 70,000 customers. That's a business overnight, seven times the size of Stephanie's business that's taken her 25 years to build. Right. If 2% of 7 million people bought her payroll, that's 140,000 customers. Again, Stephanie had 10,000 customers at the time of the acquisition. So it would be like 14 times the size. So that's called the strategic acquisition where the, the company acquiring the business has a tremendous uh, economic incentive. Uh, another good example, Jay Steinfeld guy interviewed on Built to Sell Radio. He built uh, blinds.com. Blinds.com was the number one purveyor of blinds, window coverings in the United States. And so Home Depot looked at this. And at the time, Home Depot had, call it 90 billion of revenue, they had two problems. Number one, they were not number one in the blinds category and they wanted to be. Number two though, is that they couldn't get more people to buy on homedepot.com. They staffed everyone through these physical bricks and mortar stores. And of course, when you've got bricks and mortar stores, you got employees, you got insurance, you got real estate, there's a lot of expenses there. And so they realized that if they could move more of their revenue online, it was a huge profit bump for them. Again, if you take 10% of your 90 billion in revenue and you move it online, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of, 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 uh, of saved costs. And so when they looked at blinds.com, they saw two benefits to buying the business. Number one, they could immediately become the number one window coverings company in the United States. But the second benefit 
was that Jay had figured out how to sell complicated products that needed to be installed on a website. Because blinds.com, 100% of Jay's revenue came from people who bought online. And so he figured out the secret sauce of getting people who have sort of something to install that needs to be measured and, and, and you got to pick the color. So complicated, right? He figured out the secret sauce of doing that on a website. And so Home Depot bought blinds.com because they're like, if we can instill what Jay knows about selling blinds and we can actually graph that across $80 billion of revenue, that's a great acquisition for us. And that's why Home Depot bought blinds.com. Yeah. So I think that it helps for entrepreneurs to think that it's it's the same exercise that we do with the customer, right? So we need to put ourselves in, in the shoes of the acquire and understand, okay, I'm buying this business and I, I need to be able to have a, a huge advantage or a plan to grow this business. So it, it doesn't matter the past and using your words in previous podcasts that I had the opportunity to to hear, it, it's much more the a game for, for the future. So typically entrepreneur will say, look, I, I made a huge sacrifice to get where I am. I made this, this and that, and, and the business is fantastic. And the, and the new owner is thinking, okay, how, how do I build the business to the next stage? Because my, my journey is starting now, right? So your journey is ending here, but mine is starting here. So if I'm not able yeah. to deliver any value, this is not a good business for me. It's, it, you're, you're picking up on one of the biggest mistakes I think founders make when they want to go sell their company is they're all a rear view mirror. They're all like, look at all the, look at what I've accomplished. We've got 8 million in revenue. We've got $2 million of EBITDA. We've got this customer, this customer, this customer. Look at the management team I've created. Look at all the awards we've won. Look at our great locations, right? This is all rear view mirror stuff. It makes them proud, pumping their chest, thinking great. This is awesome <laughs> stuff, right? What you're forgetting though, is the acquirer is going to start their journey as the new owner of your company. So while you may be super proud to have gotten it to 8 million and $2 million of EBITDA, they want to know how they're going to get it to 80 million. That's what they're care. And, and the fact that you have a great brand, that you've won awards, that you've got good location, all this is great fodder that maybe indicates that there may be a potential to in the future grow, but never forget what they're buying is your future stream of profit, right? They're buying your future stream of profit, not your past profit. They want your future stream of profit. So the more you can convince them that, yeah, you got to eight, but with their help, you can get to 80 that's when you start to get premium valuations for your business. They're buying your future, not your past. The past is just some vague kernel uh, breadcrumb to suggest what you might do in the future. But your job is to convince them of the future, not what you've done in the past. Yeah. And we are four minutes uh, away of, of closing the show and you are always invited to to come back join it there is so much to to cover and i spend a lot of time on the why on, on the timing i think it's it's really important it's this, a huge reflection and what you will do after right which is also that is really important to to prepare so we didn't discuss too much the how to get there but anyway when we are discussing the art of scaling it's a lot of this there's something that i also heard you saying that i loved which is you need to delegate the doing and then to delegate the selling. And we know that when we are scaling up, the, the delegating, creating that revenue machine, especially if the founder is 
sales oriented or as a sales background and we have still founder sales in the business this is really really difficult to create that that mechanism and that machine let's say that is repeatable predictable uh, and and profitable but but we have discussed this several times anything that i should ask you that is really important for for the ones who are listening to us and that you would like to uh, to wrap up with before i I will not have time to go through all my last questions on the show, but uh... yeah, no, I think, I think if I can leave your listeners with one idea that maybe, you know, maybe summarizes a lot of stuff we've talked about today. And I've, I've been overly dogmatic and argumentative just to hopefully make it a, in a, in a, an entertaining conversation on some level, I hope, but absolutely. I love it in a more sober sort of voice. I would just encourage founders to to consider the idea that their biggest job as the owner and founder of a business is to be that of a parent, not a CEO. And what do I mean by that? I mean that if you think about your own life, um, Mike, do you have kids? Do you have kids? I sorry, we're asking me not not yet. Okay, when you have them. Um, it's transformational, but you you will come to realize, I think, that your biggest aspiration for your kids is not that they become the next president of the United States or they, they, they you know they're a world famous pianist or whatever. They they're just happy and they're independent right. and they can succeed on their own terms in in the world, right? It becomes like the ultimate aspiration for most parents that they have raised kids that can succeed in the world. Yeah, and. And I would just encourage founders to think of their role as the parent of their business, meaning your biggest objective should be to create a business that can one day thrive without you. That's the ultimate, is, is a business that can thrive without you. You've given birth in the world. You've created life. And it will go on forever without you if it's not dependent on you. And, and that's a built-to-sell company, one that does not depend on you for its survival. It's the most important job as a parent. And I think instead of focusing on hitting the next EBITDA goal, hitting the next revenue goal, if you start to think, no, you know what? Actually, what I'm trying to do is build a business that can thrive without me. You start to make different decisions. I think that's, that's the ultimate role of, uh, of a founder. And uh, we always close the show in that way. So with, with advice to your younger self, and I assume it's very similar to go. what you just, you just said, right? So you just answered to that. So that, that's a great way of wrapping up. John, thanks so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. And congrats for what you, what you are doing. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And to our community, thanks for being there. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.